I know sometimes people think like mythologies, fairy tales, they just kind of like try to tell you how to act right. You know, it tells, it gives us lessons. It's like, that's kind of true in a way because it's revealing something about us that we can learn, but it's so much deeper than that. It's being able to find a container for your own inner material outwardly. And that space that is created allows you to work with it, I think, just a little bit more objectively, um, to see it in new light, to maybe not feel so alone or so alienated or to, to be so hard on yourself, but just to understand that this is part of the natural psychic process. Welcome back to another week here on the Hidden World Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Logan, and today my guest is a returning favorite, Alyssa Polizzi. Alyssa is a very gifted teacher on so many of the topics and points of interest that fascinate me and most Hidden World listeners the most. Today, Alyssa and I are talking about the hidden world of mythology and all of the psycho-spiritual riches a single myth can provide. If this conversation stirs something important in you and you'd like to explore more myths and stories in this type of way we're doing today, Alyssa is teaching an ongoing series of online classes on how to work with myths one at a time to facilitate the individuation process. You can find more about this at Alyssa's website, which we will list in our show notes. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. So let's start broad and then let's bring it down maybe into a single myth. Yeah. And explore how to work with that psychologically. Mm. Yep. So maybe my first question for you is, what is a myth and why should we care about it? Yeah, great question. Uh, there is a quote from Edward Edinger, uh, Jungian analyst, that I really love. He says, mythology is the self-revelation of the archetypal psyche. I think it's such a succinct, beautiful encapsulation of what mythology is. Um, I think we could break it down a little bit further because what is what does he mean by archetypal psyche? Mm -hmm. um, it's the part of us psychologically, spiritually, biologically in an embodied way where archetypes come alive and archetypes we can sort of think of as these sort of innate predispositions to human behavior. They sort of organize and structure psyche. They, they give us form. So to kind of loop that back into mythology, the way that archetypes live through us become uh, woven into symbolic narratives that are mythology and they reveal archetypal truths. So it's so important, I think, to study myth because it's studying the human spirit. It's studying the human condition. It reveals so much about us because the patterns are true no matter where we look in time and space. Uh, 
we're we're getting a glimpse into the human psyche. Hmm. Yes. So you are saying in some ways a myth reveals a both a universal and an individual truth. Hmm. Um for the human being, for the reflective, um, conscious human being. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, of course, that you are preaching to the fully converted (laughs) (laughs) in in me. Um, but I want to frame this for, for listeners, um, maybe by talking about a singular myth and then seeing where that takes us. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you would be interested in talking um, together about perhaps maybe the Demeter, Persephone, Hecate. I was already there before you even (laughs) said that. So, (laughs) Okay. Good. Okay, good. Because this is, um, this is the realm I'm personally kind of loosening and, and unpacking right now. So there's energy for me as well. Okay. Okay. I'm going to let you set the stage (laughs) if you're comfortable with that. Tell us that story. Sure. The story really begins in the kind of golden, rich, abundant fields of the earth where Persephone, the daughter of Demeter, who is the goddess of the grain, um, the goddess of earth, you might say, Her daughter is moving through these fields, picking flowers. It's a really innocent, very childlike moment. Um, She's picking these flowers. She's with her other maidens. And as she sort of bends down to grab another flower, suddenly the earth splits open. And from this sort of chasm of darkness rises Hades, the god of the underworld. And he snatches up Persephone. And he takes her down. And so in this split moment, this kind of ideal, innocent world is totally ruptured. I'll pause there. You know, the way you said that stirred a lot in me. Mm. Um, Because when I think about the, the inevitable wounding of the soul, Mm. that's actually a really nice illustration of how it feels the first time any of us get get a bit um, of that, I don't know, initial early identification with the ideal environment or the Mm. ideal symbiotic field, whether mm-hmm. that's the parent or the caregiver. Yeah. There's a rupture, right? Yeah. There's a yeah. splitting of the ground you're standing on. Mm-hmm. And there's a feeling of getting absconded, yeah. you know, taken yeah. to the dark underbelly of what you thought would be predictably um, idyllic. Yeah. Forever. Yes. So right there, we're already in developmental psychology. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it's communicated through 
symbolism, through narrative, through metaphor. And this is where I start to really look at the power of mythology to allow us to get into relationship with something so deep and so complex, but in such a relatable way. And we don't even have to be there consciously. Okay, I'm in developmental psychology. I'm thinking about my mother complex. It's like, no, 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 you don't need that at all. All you have to do is be with the story and see what it brings up inside of you because it is going to constellate all of these different feelings, thought patterns, ideas. It's it's so powerful because it does just that. It's mm-hmm. mm, good. Okay. Now I want you to continue with the next beat. Yeah. Sorry. So Persephone is taken and it happens so quickly. There's really no understanding of what exactly happened. And so Demeter, the mother, is just completely struck by the total loss of her daughter and the uncertainty of everything that has just happened. It's like for her, she's lost everything in this moment. And the myth starts to follow her in her despair, in her grieving. And as she's doing this, as she's sort of wandering from place to place, trying to figure out what happened, the earth slowly starts to deteriorate around her um, as a kind of grain goddess or as like the personification of the health of the earth, you might say, as Demeter, as she deteriorates, so does the earth itself. So um, the the grain is no longer, you know, taking fruit or, or bearing all of its abundance. People are going to starve. There's all of this panic. Um, and yet Demeter says, like, if if she does not get her daughter back, she really won't be able to re- revert back to her, her own health or her own well-being. She can't find her center again. And at this point, we start to learn some of the details more about what happened, which is that Hades uh, desired Persephone. And because Zeus is both the father of all beings, but also um, the father of Persephone, he okayed this. He said, all right, you may have Persephone. And so eventually it, it does sort of come on to his shoulders to to right the wrong that has been done all of this time persephone is in the underworld we don't really know what happens to her there isn't necessarily details in the mythology about what she's doing necessarily but a, a deal is sort of struck essentially that she will be allowed to be brought back and reunited with demeter so that balance can be sort of brought back i'll pause there before we go further (laughs) yeah because this is something that i just learned within the last handful of weeks um that the only person that knew what had happened to persephone was hecate Mm. the old the old woman the yeah. old virgin woman, mm. you know, the old crone woman. <laughs> yeah. The the person who the only person who could perceive and could hear. Yeah. And could then name what had happened. Yeah. Was yeah. this other archetypal force. Um 
because the underworld is the underworld. You know, not even Zeus is traveling down there. Yeah, yeah. This sky god, this, you know, god of solar consciousness, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what you make of that piece of the story. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, when I start to sit with the idea of, of Hecate, I think a lot about her as representation of the boundaries and the crossroads and the kind of liminal space. And so it requires really a part of both the personal or archetypal psyche, you might say, that can be in both places at once that can kind of mediate these different realities to know that a part of ourself has been pulled under into the depths, even if there's disorientation happening kind of above level, uh, the conscious attitude, which we might say in part is the, uh, the Demeter side of it. You know, what has happened? You just know that something's wrong. You don't understand it. Eventually something deeper, wiser that can kind of stand in both of those places can help you understand, can give you a little bit of that piece that can help you start to, to kind of put those pieces back together and to create possibly a path forward to not only maybe reclaim what has lost, but I think ultimately, as the story does tell us, to come into relationship with a completely transformed version of yourself once you return back to it or once it 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 it, it sort of circles back into a place where you can interact with it again. And so Hecate being that mediator, being that kind of psychopomp in a way mm-hmm. is extremely powerful because her, her, her symbolism as darkness, as, as a kind of magical forces, as, as this shifting layer of deep, a kind of primal wisdom, I think is, is so powerful in what it can mean for us in our own similar situations when we've been pulled into the underworld. That's really good. And I wonder if, um, you know, to kind of pull this back a bit to the developmental piece I brought up earlier, if it just takes a lot of time or and or an encounter with Mm. some sort of embodied uh, psychopomp you know Mm -hmm. someone who can't who has and can perceive both what happens in the underworld and in the conscious world yeah has done some of that work themselves that is then able to help mediate. Yeah. And eventually this force or these experiences can become internalized. And then we ourselves have access to this in, inside of us and we can help mm-hmm. mediate these, yeah. these fragmented split aspects of ourselves yeah. um, over time and yeah. careful ongoing courageous attention. Absolutely. I think it's like an and both situation for me where I think naturally some individuals without that 
outward external help or the finding of that kind of psychopomper guide in another might naturally stumble into it themselves. Maybe there's something within them that's just sort of ripe to be born or recognize that kind of guides this difficult, disorienting path. And other times we have to recognize that we just don't have the tools or maybe even more importantly to say is like much of our, at least Western culture hasn't set us up to be in communal systems where that can be easily mediated for us or where we have connection to individuals who are more wise, more mature, um, spiritual leaders really who have done that deep work and can act as those guides for others. And so I think in many ways, we're sort of cut off from that mythological depth that we might've had in older times um, Mm -hmm. where we could have found that more readily. Um, So now we do sort of have to outsource it, look for it in a well-trained healing professional, in a therapist, in a teacher. And when it happens, it can just be so powerful because they've walked that path. They've done their journeying to some degree, at least that they can facilitate it for another. And then I think there are individuals who get pulled so deep into these places, sometimes at quite young ages. And there's just something inherently deep and wise that meets that experience and mediates it to the best of its ability. Sometimes with such a depth of wisdom that it can only be seen as like some sort of instinctual Mm -hmm. archetypal presence, Mm -hmm. you know, that knows how to mediate that for people. So it's it's so intriguing to sort of see the myriad ways that that manifests because it can happen inside of yourself and it can happen outwardly as well. Who who said um, when the parents are absent, or you could say the elders are absent, the archetypes babysit? Who said Ooh, that? Oh, I don't know, but I really like it. <laughs> to your point, you know if. If there is um, early, um, you know, really early significant trauma, and and that is defined individually. That's a very subjective, yeah, um, understanding. Yeah, and the the elders or the parents are absent. Then there does seem oftentimes to be something that rises up to meet mm-hmm. and help mediate. Yeah, the pain and Absolutely. the bewilderment. Yeah. For the child. It I don't know that it gets named until until the child then finds like a naming system. Right. Yeah. But it's there nevertheless. Yeah. It it's to me very reminiscent of Donald Kelshed's work. And mm-hmm. I don't know if he said that, but I think the spirit of that quote is very much in Kelshed's work, where there is this kind of like archetypal self-care system that becomes activated to meet these kind of ruptures that happen. And he has such incredible, fascinating case studies that he really looks at for people who, when something has come up, especially I think when it's very, um, when it happens very early in an individual's life, that something comes up within the psyche that 
can mediate that experience. And often the imagery or the kind of visions that those people see are like angels or, you know, like a great mother figure or a Mary figure. And, and that is enough of a holding for them to be able to move through what's happened. Um, but of course, on the flip side, uh, uh, there's the dark aspect of the self-care system in which a kind of darker, more destructive archetypal force may also uh, kind of become activated in that person. And so you have to kind of look at how both sides of that, uh, the potential for that to rise up when there isn't sufficient mediation outwardly for a person. Yeah. So what do you make of some of the other characters in this story. And if, if you look at a myth as a narrative reflection of one individual psyche, mm-hmm. then, then what, what part of us can we find in the reflection of, of Demeter or of Hades yeah. or of Persephone? Yeah. Well, I think starting with Persephone to me is so interesting because she's first known, I mean, we call her Persephone, of course, but her sort of original name, Quarry, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, means maiden. And so she's just known as sort of like this archetypal, youthful, uninitiated feminine principle. And through this process of being, um, sort of snatched away from her identification with the mother um, away from all that is known away from the idyllic sort of utopian beautiful flower fields of the mother goddess she comes into this new version of herself into Persephone which has like really interesting sort of roots um you know, on a sort of etymological level or the meaning of her name, which is sometimes like bringer of death or bringer of destruction. It's this really intense, heavy name. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, there's such an incredible arc of Persephone coming into maturity and how we start out in this place of innocence naturally and at all different periods of our life. Like we don't have to be a young child or a teenager to be in innocence by any means, Mm -hmm. but through the kind of dark underworld journey Mm -hmm. and facing it and kind of taking it in and digesting it, which we haven't gotten to, but we will, you can transform and she becomes queen of the underworld. And I think that that, it's such, it's such an interesting um, shift in who she is because she becomes able to now mediate a new reality to herself. She becomes transformed. She is no longer fully identified with the mother, but we we recognize through the myth that that initial moment, that split, it feels overwhelming. It feels like a violation. It feels like every part of you is dissolving in a way and and something else hopefully will reform in its place um so her her alone we can just see so much um maturity growth and transformation and i think the sort of i view her kind of psychologically at least as like the kind of the central um kind of conscious principle that is 
being moved through these different experiences and is inevitably going to kind of come out that other side completely changed, transformed through the process. Yeah, and actually the name bringer of death, it's, we have a really weird relationship with death here in the in the modern kind of Western world, but something does die when yeah. when maidenhood or innocence is is transformed when mm. when youth the maybe maybe innocence is the best word but the the naivety the the belief that the world is one-sided or sure. you know yeah. should be fair or is just or whatever it is something does die when we have to reconcile ourselves to the whole truth of existence, which includes the dark underbelly of everything. Yeah, absolutely. I think that first meeting of the unconscious, it feels like you've just been plunged into the deep end. It feels like that cold shock that completely wakes you up or strips you bare of of everything you've held so close to you. Um, it feels like something that's going to strangle you or something that you just don't know how you can possibly handle. I, the, the experience of the unconscious, I think as, as it's often said in the union terms is like a defeat of the ego. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any encounter with the self or any encounter with the unconscious, I can't remember the phrase, yeah, but is a defeat for the ego. Yeah. 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 And, and that's painful, right? You oh, know? my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, and the only hope we have um, for navigating that, I think, is to just have a lot of practice. Yeah you know, to kind of go, go through these cycles. Yeah. So many times that the ego is, is, I guess, relativized enough that it's not a crisis every time. Yeah. Unconscious material comes up. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, and it's like that, I think having the image of the spiral in mind is really important for this because it's not just you go through one version of this and you're all done or you've gained all the skills. It's this constant sort of circumambulating around and around this same type of idea. And yet each time you kind of circle and it completes and it continues, you gain greater competency, greater fluency. You're able to hold yourself a little bit more. You stay more grounded within yourself. You don't kind of fly off into, you know, embodied forms of anxiety or panic. It's like each time you, you become, you like, you just digest a little bit more. You become more acclimated to diving into that place. Um, until the next big curveball kind of is thrown your way. What about Demeter? What about her? What? Who is she in the psyche? And what, does she also become transformed or or not really? It's mm, a good question. I, there's there's a lot of different ways to look at it, and often, you know, we look at 
Demeter as this kind of archetypal pattern of the mother or the great mother. And a lot of times, you know, she's sort of put in that light side of the spectrum. She is the fecundity of the earth. She is the green goddess. She is sort of pregnant with all the potentials that the earth holds. But she's really complex in this myth in that she gets into a dark, destructive place. And in that way, she kind of has that bivalent nature that we see in a more complex or a more whole version of a mother goddess where she is both creation and she is destruction. Um, we see that a lot in like the figure of Bob Yaga or in Kali. So I think that in some ways she represents definitely like that transpersonal source within us that can show up as nurturing and creative, the kind of inner mother or the part of our own personal mother that's been taken inward, but it also gets us into the archetypal potentials of the mother and that she kind of steps into her dark, destructive place, shows her complexity. Um, at the same time, I think it it could speak to maybe the experience that many parents have um, where losing the child and with it, the identity of parenthood, or if you want to get like much more general about it, like something that you nurture in life that feels like your child, whether it's a physical child or not, when you lose that, who are you without it? And she kind of spends this myth, like wandering place to place, trying to um, put together what was lost. Mm. And that's so fascinating to me because in some ways it's it's kind of regressive, right? Like she, <laughs> she wants to return back to this sort of mother daughter utopian idealized um, relationship mm -hmm. but born from this we also see the Eleusinian mysteries which are really all about the 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 initiation rites that Demeter herself passed on when she entered into the town of Eleusis while searching for Persephone and this becomes a huge set of, of sort of religious cults and rites in not only Greek culture, but also Roman culture as well. And so there's something about what Demeter is representing that we can look at as sort of she stays sort of static. She wants to regress, but also she has this complex nature to her and she shares these powerful religious rites that go on to sort of shape like the psyche of, of Greek culture for a, a really long time. Yeah. And thereby really in a lot of ways shape the psyche of the Western world. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. so interesting. Um, to talk about her. She's kind of one of the more exciting figures for me to talk about because of this complexity. I feel mm. like in the story in particular, she's a warning. You know, her story is like a warning. It's a psychic warning. Mm. Who do we become when we get over-identified with yeah. a certain aspect of our creativity or our yeah. creative progeny? Yeah. When, when we are possessive of that, mm. we get sort of or possessed by it. Yeah, absolutely. Then we, then we are very vulnerable to um, shadow intrusion mm. and to acting out a ton of destructive 
unconscious material. Yeah. 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 And yet there is also in this the desire to be connected yeah. and to be able to stay related mm. to the things we love. Mm. And so it's not a straightforward, easy path, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that's part of it, like the signs that all of that is there is when we know we're in some really deep, alive mythic material where it's not just this very static, straightforward interpretation because these stories are symbolic. There are so many layers to them. They're kind of kaleidoscopic. You know, we can look at them from all these different angles and notice a nuance or have it interpreted slightly different or see the action of a particular figure in multiple ways. And I don't think that's meant to be disorienting. If anything, when, when I find that it feels enlivening, it feels like things are exponentially growing and you can anchor in, in all of these ways and find this kind of like, um, libidinal flow to, to, to anchor into. And it's boom, there you are with her, you know, identification with the creative progeny or boom, there you are with her destructive side. And it's, it's so powerful. Um, I think this is true whenever you're in sort of symbolic archetypal mythic systems, this should always be present. And that is sort of what works upon us. Cause I think wherever you meet that kind of archetypal figure, that mythic figure, whatever might become most alive at that moment is probably what you're really needing. But as you return time and time again, that kind of spiraling dynamic, it's changed. A new, a new detail has caught your eye or a new interpretation is what is front and center. And, and that's so fascinating. To yes. Me. Yeah. Because even as you were talking, I was trying to think about the ways that I could right now in this moment, shift the kaleidoscopic lens. Mm. And I had another thought, like, you know, at times we need the um, singular passionate focus of Demeter to, to rescue some aspect of ourselves or, or, or some aspect of a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then shifting it one more time, I thought you can find yourself in a pretty gnarly, almost intractable depression Mm. if you insist that how you once felt and lived and existed and moved and had your being is the right and only way and you need to get it back. Yeah. Yeah, they're both true. And we probably find ourselves in that reality at different points in our life. And yet we can turn to the same myth and find wisdom or find a kind of loose map that you can understand 
kind of instinctually how we might relate. And that's, this is a really good example of what it means when like we say that like archetypes are these instinctual patterns. It's like, there's just something in us naturally that tends to identify with this situation this way. And it's true for me. It's true for you. It's true a hundred thousand years ago. It's true in this myth. And so what it can, what is it telling it? What is it telling us about our kind of collective human psychic uh, typical behaviors? And how can you take that in and learn from it or move with it? Um, how do you see the sort of story shift and change? Or where do you find a different insight kind of based on that pattern that you're recognizing? And, you know, I, I know sometimes people think like mythologies, fairy tales, they just kind of like try to tell you how to act right. You know, it tells, it gives us lessons. It's like, that's kind of true in a way because it's revealing something about us that we can learn, but it's so much deeper than that. It's being able to find a container for your own inner material outwardly. And that space that is created allows you to work with it, I think, just a little bit more objectively um, to see it in new light, to maybe not feel so alone or so alienated or to, to be so hard on yourself, but just to understand that this is part of the natural psychic process. And yet within that, there are still all of these different ways for us to relate or grow or change if we can find that in ourselves, but more importantly, I think even find it within the story and then allow it to work on us and help facilitate those changes. Mm, yes, that's really good. Who is Hades intrapsychically for mm. us? Yeah. Oh, Hades. Um, you know, there's, I did a podcast episode on Hades and Persephone and sort of when we dove really into the sitting with this archetype I think what was partly so fascinating to me is how much information there isn't about Hades you know he's sort of this god of the underworld the god of the depths and yet he's also the kind of god of invisibility there is like the helm that can be worn is is his helm when you place it upon your head you know invisible powers are activated so he and when you look at a lot of the old history too there aren't um a lot of stories about him there are very very little um sort of art pieces or images found of him he's sort of like this this invisible structure existing within us um and yet at the same time also represents the kind of dark side of the sky father um sometimes hades is referred to as the kind of chthonic zeus and so he can be seen as that kind of uh the spirit principle in the depths or the sky father you know in darkness and in the underworld and so as the unseen one he relates really richly I think to aspects of the underworld or maybe a ruling principle of those depths that we interact with that feels in part like it's enforcing things on us enforcing like a, a new paradigm a new reality and yet when you get there it's hard to fully understand 
what it is you're interacting with because it until that moment you haven't really seen or understood what it was and yet there's this deep rich very wise ordering principle of the depths that I think is partly represented in Hades that is um really rich I have to tell you now and I I may cut this but I I had a dream maybe a month ago that I was engaged to be married to Hades <laughs> and that you know that's all the dream that I'll, I'll mention but um as I went to really kind of look into who Hades was, the thing I kept coming up against was there's not a lot that we know because I think precisely because it's a, as you said so well, a ruling principle of the unconscious, yeah. of the underworld, of what is below consciousness. So it operates on us and we feel it and mm. it, it pulls us down. Yeah into certain experiences that actually are not all that clear, even when we emerge from, from, from contact with that. Yes, absolutely. In some ways, maybe this is a ruling principle of, of dream life as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. This I think is the sort of perfect plug of dream in the underworld by James Hillman, just an incredible exploration in these very ideas of what it means to truly descend into the underworld and to interact with these forces that are in some ways so different than what we can possibly comprehend. And Hades, I think, really is sort of acting as at least the the barest form that we can decipher from the unconscious space. Um, But within that, there's all of these really interesting, I think, little... Uh, sort of revealing moments that show exactly what the kind of loose structure of the unconscious is on the more Roman side um, being Pluto, which means riches. It's like, oh, I love this. Like now we're getting into this. What does it mean to interact with the fertile richness of the unconscious that like, you know, really all of the nutrients, all of these potential aspects of life are actually underground and we can think of our unconscious space or the collective unconscious space as this storehouse of riches. That's the kind of golden shadow in a way is uh, when we, when we allow ourselves to be pulled under what we might find might be exactly what we needed, but didn't know. And so the interaction with it might feel overwhelming. It might bring up all of this darkness. You are sort of in the realm of death. And yet at the same time, there there is richness, there is abundance, and there's all of these new aspects of life or life energy that can be taken with you and really then kind of like awaken a whole new form inside of yourself that was just waiting to be activated. But isn't that true about the things that can't be seen or are underground? Yeah. In addition to sort of that aspect of the richness, he's kind of this being that unknowable um, part of ourself, but at the same time, nameable. So it's very paradoxical, unknowable, but knowable. We have a name for him. He's got a structure. He has some stories 
um he kind of like is a really interesting vessel in that way he's kind of this this void but within that void actually there's a shape to it so when we interact with it we start to kind of find the the new structures that it's placing around us and i think that's where we get into that kind of ordering a ruling aspect kind of being that underworld version of zeus is that it's it's very it's very much a void or a space that we can grow into but we have to allow ourselves to be taken under and i think another aspect of hades that i always find so interesting is that you know he's not he's not a devil figure you know he's not luciferian he's not a a, a christian underworld figure he is fair he is just, he assures that sort of that the the way that the underworld kingdom needs to be run is run. And I think you actually see this a lot with many mythological figures who rule the underworld is that they, there are rules, there are stipulations to entering into the underworld. Often when you go in, you don't come back. <laughs> That's like a big one. Or you have to learn how to sort of mediate the descent and ascent. I think that's kind of the, the next level of that. Um, there's probably partly like a, a kind of collective projection of that fear of once we go under, we never come back. But there are so many stories that actually explore the rising of, of, of the individual, the god, the heroic figure, the heroine coming out of the underworld. So th there's something there that tells us that it's not a death sentence, even though it is the world of the dead. Um, and so he sort of mediates this place and he's quite fair in that way. You know, you can speak with him, you can kind of bargain with him even. And he also defers to Persephone as well. She becomes that kind of balancing other half that is, I think, shapes so much richness to what the underworld is. And we can see so much in both queen and king of the underworld in both Hades and Persephone. So then what happens in the myth next? So Demeter knows where Persephone is. Mm -hmm. She's had some sort of audience with Zeus because she's she's made the earth run completely barren. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And that's not going to work for Zeus or the other gods because they're not getting their grain offerings at their temples yeah. that they want. Yeah. Um which is fascinating in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. That that all the figures in the psyche, you know, all these archetypal forces would want their proper honoring. Yeah. That there's some kind of desire for balance and wholeness. Yeah. Um, nothing can get too extreme um, in, in any sort of direction. And so... What is the bargain that gets struck and what happens between Hades and Persephone? Yeah. So, you know, the, the audience ultimately goes well. As you said, there's this need for the, for the gods to have their offering. We cannot let um, humanity com become completely instinct. We can't allow the earth to wither away. And so Hades essentially is forced or told to return Persephone. So he complies and, you know, there's sort of always different versions of the myth and some versions 
Hades tricks Persephone and he gives her some pomegranate seeds to eat. And when she eats this, um, she becomes sort of bound to the underworld. You're not allowed to eat anything of the underworld. Once it's ingested, you are a part of it. Um, and there's certain versions too where she unknowingly eats it and it isn't so much um, Hades trying to be duplicitous in any way. And I think there's interesting insights to see from both of those versions, but most importantly, Persephone eats the pomegranate seeds. And because of this, um, as Hermes is sent down to retrieve her in good psychopomp fashion from the underworld to the upper world, she essentially, we, we run into this, this issue. You've eaten the seeds, you've eaten of the underworld. I can't just take you back. And that's the end of the story. Because of this, she has to remain part of the year underneath in the underworld with Hades, but in turn, for part of the year, she gets to be released and she can go back up above ground and be with Demeter. And this is where you see that kind of aspect of the myth that we also see in, in other myths, where there's this sort of period of time where the god descends or the individual descends, and then a period of time where they're allowed to rise back up. And we sort of conclude the myth at this place where a kind of a, a new paradigm has been established for Demeter and Persephone. You know, I recently read most of a book on Jung's lectures on Kundalini Yoga. Mm. And he talks about how he kind of calls the calls the sacral center of the body or the second chakra. Mm hmm the underworld. Interesting. You know, there, there are the, that is the unconscious. That is the sea. And in there is Leviathan, the beast mm. could keep you there, could destroy mm. you. And also there, though, that is where there is power and there is riches and etc. cetera. Yeah. yeah. And if you stay there, you know, that's trouble. Um, if you get identified with just that one realm of existence, that's trouble. But even if you go there and you work through it and you move through um, kind of the stages of consciousness or the cycles of consciousness, you leave a part of yourself. Mm. You leave a part of yourself there. Yeah. And that that is never not true. You can never again be Corey. You yeah. can never again be the, the young maiden uninitiated. And so perhaps you don't have to live from the underside of the, of the separation, of the wounding, of the, of the trauma of the initiation. Yeah. But, but that part of you remains initiated. Yeah. And therefore you will get called back into it. Yeah. from time to time to kind of deal with it again and again yeah. and again and again yes. not without agency mm -hmm. and in this tale also not without some privilege sure to be a queen is not nothing yeah sometimes it's sort of been boiled down to you this abduction of this young child and there's this literalism that is so sort of uh, rampant in in our modern Western 
understanding that we lose this richness. And I think this is where myth has its power, as I mentioned before, when we step out of literal reality or of a, a literal understanding, the abduction becomes this powerful initiation and the eating of the pomegranate seeds is this recognition of having to take some part of this experience into you so much so that it changes you forever. So that actually when you need to kind of go back into that space, you're doing so not from that place of overwhelm from abduction, but rather as you were sort of talking about in this, in this new form as queen by choice, as a, I've been here before, so I know how to handle it. Um, there, there's a new ground that's been gained and this ability to kind of accept that a part of ourselves has died, that a part of ourself was lost, that a part of ourself will never be what it was, that kind of loss of maidenhood, you might say, of, of innocence. If we can metabolize that, what comes from it, I think, is a strength that is representative of the queen. Okay, I have I have one last question about the story, and then I'll ask the question I always ask you. Mm -hmm. um, but who is Hermes in this tale? Yeah, Hermes is such a fascinating figure, I think, in part because he's been sort of taken on and and amplified into all of these dynamic alchemical areas but you know first and foremost you know he is this sort of fun loving mercurial god of of messages of commerce so relationship exchange but also one of the only individuals who can move between the realms sort of similar to hecate he is a psychopomp. He delivers souls or he can go into the underworld and he can come back. That is, I think, part of why he was um, sort of gripped onto as a symbol of transformation with the alchemist because he has this ability to also mediate different realities. And this figure of Hermes is the part of us that I think can shape shift into the necessary path upward and downward. Um, maybe Persephone is the one walking that path, but what is the aspect of us that can hold that tension or hold that structure for us to be able to move between it and do so with lightness, do so with this sense of, of levity and connection to the upper world and the underworld he he he's endlessly fascinating to me but i think just anchoring into him as as hermes psychopomp is is so important and and that he 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 walks that path or he creates that path for us and sometimes we're stuck in that underworld part of us that that is really struggling with how to get back out and sort of allowing ourselves to step into the kind of Hermes nature, I think in part is allowing ourselves to remember that we can soften, where we can kind of loosen that rigidity 
And mm-hmm. that might be that way for us to kind of move out of a stuckness and 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 begin moving then into those those next stages that we need to. Yeah. There's something very non-defensive about Hermes, right? Just curiosity. I'm I'm here to to play. Yeah, here to play. Here to play. And um, you know, I personally I feel like have often needed that kind of orientation to to work through the hardest things Mm. like what what happens if I stop for just a second here with the agony yeah um or or the the narrative the rigid narrative Mm. who's to blame and I can just get curious or play at the edges of things or I mean really quite this is going to sound so, so simple, but to, to draw something that represents what's going on to just start making images or mm. is a kind of playing with, or, um, you know, the acting out of something in a kind of psychodrama or sand ray to kind of get out of the, the realm of thinking yeah. and, um, solving and that can really loosen the grip of the underworld and also it can loosen the grip of the upper world yeah and so i I find i also find that figure that's that archetypal figure that um that psychic energy to be extraordinarily helpful at, a, at allowing a kind of inner, inner dance of opposites to, to not be super destructive. Mm, yeah. I think that's when we're getting into that realm of the trickster, which he is known as, you know, and it just has such a transformational quality to it. It can it can be this and then it can be that. And, and it's like, well, how is that possible? It's like, get, get into the mind of paradox, get into the mindset of play, lose that rigidity. Hermes has that. And as many trickster figures do, they, they kind of turn the world up on its head. They shift things all around. So you can see it finally from this new perspective that you've been needing. So he's both this you know, sort of charted as like soul guide, as conductor of souls into the afterlife. And yet his first story when he's born is stealing Apollo's cows and totally lying about it. Just like, oh, I didn't do it. Like, you know, he's, <laughs> he's playing tricks from the moment he's born. And it's the it's the quality that we need to spark transformation, mm-hmm. uh, to loosen up that rigidity, as you said, and it can be really difficult to find because that identification that we might have that creates, you know, rigidity is structure. Rigidity is something that makes us feel that we have something steady to lean against. And so there's the sort of necessary walking that line between just the right amount of rigidity and then the dissolution of rigidity when you need it. So I, Hermes can be that and he, and he can sort of work upon us in that way. And I think for the story, maybe we can look at it as well as the ability for the psyche to 
be in the underworld to to take on what that means to transform into a ruling sort of new mature way in that space and then at the next moment be in the upper world remembering who you were at that place you know you're both of these things now at once and that's what a trickster is going to give us the capacity to do well then uh, I guess we've been playing in the realm of Hermes this whole conversation. <laughs> exactly. you know, to, to look at the psyche through the lens of a story yeah. Yeah. is a way to soften and be, you know, undefended against the, the difficulty of the human condition, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. What is one thing today that you wish everyone knew? Hmm. I guess in line with today's theme, it's the power of, of image and metaphor and symbol that I wish everyone just has the opportunity to not know, because I think everyone knows it, but we've forgotten or we've, it's been conditioned out of us. And what I've seen in my own work or with others or in classes or doing a tarot reading or reading a myth is that it's like, my God, there is this potential for us to just come alive, to shift and change in ways we didn't know that was possible, all by giving space to the mythic reality that is inside us at all times, because in my mind, the nature of the psyche is not words and thoughts and principles. It's metaphor, it's symbol, it's image. It's it's why when we go to sleep at night and consciousness dims and ego sort of pushed aside, what we see in dreams are these metaphorical symbolic stories we see reality mediated in a new way and when we give ourselves the space to to connect to it to be enriched and enlivened by it our life is is changed and transformed i think genuinely things that have been stuck inside of us those rigid identifications can suddenly melt away So my wish really is for anyone to find what that means, whether it's in a fairy tale or a myth or in astrology or in tarot, or maybe in a really awesome movie that just seemed to strike something deep in you. Like those are modern myths too. Something is there for you to, to come back into relationship with. It's, it's really our, our heritage as these complex humans who are on the one hand sort of ruled by story but at the same time we are we are made up of story it's 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 the psychic sort of genes of who we are so I wish for all to find that for themselves Mm. Mm. me too (laughs) (laughs) thank you for doing this again you're welcome such a joy to connect with you every time Absolutely. I am very grateful that you have me on here and our conversations are just always so fun and enriching and it's just a wonderful time. So thank you. 
thank you to my guest, Alyssa, for providing us such a rich and extraordinary deep dive into the myth of Demeter, Persephone, Hecate, Hades, and Hermes, amongst others. The Hidden World podcast is produced and edited by David Gomez. Our theme song is written and recorded by David Gomez, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other. Bye.